It's time for Lawyers for Jesus, a show about the dynamic and exciting interaction of faith and the law, featuring the attorneys from the law firm Malkin Baker in downtown Chicago. Malkin Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and for serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Hello, welcome to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Rich Baker, an attorney and a partner at the law firm of Malkin Baker in Chicago. We are Christian attorneys who focus on serving the body of Christ with its legal needs. To learn more about us, go to MalkBaker.com, that's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com, or call at 312-726-1243. In an era after the widespread legalization of abortion in our country, how can we hope to protect the unborn uh, through the law? Today, we'll be continuing our discussion with Clark Forsyth, who is and has served as senior counsel for Americans United for Life for 35 years. Americans United for Life is a national public policy organization with a mission to achieve comprehensive legal protection for human life from conception to natural death. In addition to writing numerous law review articles, Clark has also authored two books, Abuse of Discretion, The Inside Story of Roe v. Wade, and Politics for the Greatest Good, The Case for Prudence in the Public Square. Clark, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Rich. Good to be with you. Uh, and I and I just have to tell our listeners, this won't be the last time you're on this show. We sure appreciate having you here. Uh, in our earlier sessions, we had begun to talk about Roe v. Wade, its impact on our culture. Uh, and we had talked about uh, your book, um, Abuse of Discretion, which talks about what went on behind the scenes in the development of that um, decision, which nationalized the right to abortion throughout our country way back in 1973. Um, then we talked also a little bit about the ongoing fight um, for life that's taken place since 1973. And I wanted you on this second show to, to focus a little bit more on your second book, which is Politics for the Greatest Good, The Case for Prudence in the Public Square. That was actually, I say your second book, that was actually the first book you wrote. But tell me, why did you write this and what are you, what are you trying to convey? I wrote Politics for the Greatest Good to explore public policy strategy to uh, confront and try to explain and, and uh, get, reach some conclusions about how most effectively to protect life in American law through the public policy process uh, among, uh, you know, in the midst of controversy, in the midst of differing visions, in the dif uh, midst of differing approaches. Uh, and so I um, actually look at the historical examples of the American founders, William Wilberforce, Abraham Lincoln, uh, look at um, um, uh, the, uh, the alternative uh, kind of a con approach of a kind of a perfectionist uh, approach that we have to uh, achieve the perfect in this world and in public policy, perfect protection for life. And then uh, look at the implications of a prudential approach for um, contemporary issues such as abortion and bioethics. Uh, there's a lot packed into that statement you just made. Let me take our listeners back just for a second uh, to the idea, first of all, you say a prudential approach. Uh, that word isn't often used today. Tell us what you mean by that and, and how that applies in this case. 
Well, it, it is uh, not used much, and it's often confused, and it's often, uh, um, I think, derided and uh, and 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 misconstrued. Uh, for example, you know, you think about a prudent investor. Uh, it's used in the world of finance, which basically means caution. Um, but prudence is is not caution, or it's not simply caution. Um, in its simplest definition, prudence is practical wisdom. Although I like Thomas Aquinas's be- definition best, which is right reason about what is to be done. So it's practical wisdom about what to do, but it is oriented toward the good. It's oriented toward the moral good. It's oriented toward moral purpose in politics and public policy. So it's not just my own personal interest, which is oftentimes what is thought about with regard to prudence. What's the best thing for me to do in order to advance whatever I'm trying to do? It's not that at all. Uh, It's not self-interest. It's it's very uh, outward looking. Uh, For the common good. uh, For the common good, yes. Yes. So, So how long did it take you well, I have a guess to the answer to this, but how long did it take you to write this book? Probably a year and a half. Um, I mean, it, it, I, I, it's uh, it's kind of like uh, ten, ten or eleven essays, uh, putting them together and uh, you know polishing it. So uh, uh, it 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 took about eighteen months, I guess. Well, I mentioned in your introduction that you're senior counsel for the Americans United for Life, and I think really this book is a reflection also of your experience at AUL and the, the the real tactics that they use or the real strategy that they have in terms of advancing uh, a life agenda. Am I right on that? Uh, very much. That's uh, it, it is drawn from experience, but prudent, prudence itself looks to experience. Well, um, all right. So let's, let's put it into practice. What does AUL do uh, with regard to prudent um, strategy to accomplish its goals to promote life? Well, I would say that we try to take the the largest steps and make the most progress possible we can in the courts and legislatures in light of the existing opportunities and obstacles. Um, so uh, prudence is not pragmatism. Uh, it's also not, uh, or I would say it's superior to what's uh, uh, incrementalism, which is a term that's bandied about a, a lot, but which I don't think is really helpful because uh, I, I mean, we're all incrementalists in the sense that we take step-by-step approaches to all facets of life. Uh, you had a step-by-step approach uh, to get to work in the morning, but um, but that doesn't tell you what the goal is. And prudence is superior to that in pointing you to the moral good, the moral purpose in politics. And, um, you know, uh, w- once you're oriented to the to that, then the question is, what's the most effective way of accomplishing that moral purpose? You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Rich Baker with the law firm of Malk and Baker. If you're just tuning in, make sure to visit MalkBaker.com to hear the rest of this interview. Today, I'm speaking with Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel with Americans United for Life. Uh, Clark, you've been talking about prudence. So how has AUL taken that prudence and applied it to the political realm? Well, uh, we're not involved in politics in the sense of elections, but uh, we work through the courts and the legislatures, which is the main way of affecting public policy in this country and through the media uh, and public education to uh, shape a pro-life public policy. And uh, we've uh, 
worked through the courts on the abortion issue. We've worked for the state legislatures. And frankly, um, one of the reasons I'm in this 35 years, uh, uh, for 35 years, is because I've seen a great deal of progress. Um, we now have 38 states with fetal homicide laws or unborn victims of violence laws. And 30 of those states, three-fifths of the law of states in this country have a fetal homicide law, which treats the killing of an unborn child as a homicide, a person in the law from conception, including Illinois. And they are actively enforced. And that has almost all come since Roe versus Wade, since 73. And it was an opportunity and a way to actively protect human life, developing human life in the womb from conception. And that is a, a sign of the progress that can be made in the legislatures. What other kind of, I think there over the years there's been a lot of progress made. That's one example of that. What other uh, things can you cite from AUL's experience that have been positives? I don't think we often hear about those. Um, well, you know, after Roe versus Wade, assisted suicide advocates in this country tried to get a Roe v. Wade of assisted suicide, as you know, through the courts. In the I think it was Oregon, 90s. wasn't it, that they – well, they, they legalized it in Oregon, but then they went into the courts to try to get a uh, – through in New York and Washington State to try to get the court to declare a national right to assisted suicide. And um, luckily they failed uh, because assisted suicide, legalized assisted suicide would be a disaster for this country, be a disaster for health care. It would be a disaster for the chronically and terminally ill. Um, and the court in 1997, in part I think because of the backlash to Roe versus Wade – said, we aren't going to create a national right to assisted suicide. This is a state issue. We're going to leave it to the states. And um, although several states have legalized assisted suicide since the 1990s, we don't have a 50-state national declaration of a right to assisted suicide. Uh, so I see that as progress, too, even though we now fight state by state to hold the line against assisted suicide. And what I'm hearing is that AUL's purpose is not just in the area of right to life with regard to birth, but it's all the way through, all the way to death. And I think you put it as natural death in, in your definition. Well, our mission is, yes, our mission is uh, comprehensive legal protection of human life from conception to natural death. So we work on the span of pro-life issues, the span of bioethical bio issues through the courts and, and the legislatures. Uh, this is an expansive question, but I want to know, beyond life and death, there are a lot of bioethical issues taking place. Is AUL involved in those issues as well? Uh, well, we'd have to address them uh, uh, issue by issue, but uh, yes, in, in many ways we are involved in a, in a number of bioethical issues. I mean, for example, uh, the embryo, the question of frozen embryos. Um, in in this country today, there are uh, half a million to a million frozen embryos, apparently, you know, in in, in laboratories across the country. Um, and 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 when a couple has frozen embryos, but they divorce or separate, uh, then there's a dispute about the custody of the embryos. Up to now, the courts have treated embryos as property, not human beings. Um, we have uh, drafted a, a, a bill for the states that would require a judge in those disputes to uh, treat it as a human being. Coming up, we will talk further with Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel with Americans United for Life, about what we can do 
about protecting life through the law. I'm Rich Baker, and this is Lawyers for Jesus. Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Rich Baker, an attorney with the firm of Malkin Baker, and we're based in Chicago, serving churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals in their legal needs. If you missed the first part of this show and want to listen online, and I hope you do, uh, go to malkbaker.com forward slash radio. Today, we're speaking with Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel with Americans United for Life, the author of Politics for the Greatest Good, The Case for Prudence in the Public Square. And we left off uh, Clark talking about um, some of the applications of prudence. And, and, and one of the things that you mentioned that I want to come back to real quickly is you said this is not incrementalism that you're talking about when you're talking about uh, prudence and applying that to the goals of, of promoting life in the United States through the law. How is it different, let's say, from the incrementalism um, that the left has used or, or a lot of the politics that we see today? Well, one way to think about it is that um, prudence is strategy and incrementalism is tactics. Uh, another way is that, um, uh, you know, if, if you think of an incrementalist approach as a step-by-step approach, what guides it? To what is it directed? What's its goal? I mean, you can take steps in any direction, but what's your goal? And prudence provides the goal. Prudent, a prudential evaluation, you know, helps you identify your goal. And then once your goal, uh, your purpose is outlined, then prudence, practical wisdom may guide you and say, well, we need an, we need an incrementalist approach here. But, but, but then the question is, it's not just small steps. Sometimes people who don't know me will come up to me and say, uh, I really like your strategy of small steps now. This is nothing about small steps. It's about the largest possible step toward the moral good we can take in light of the opportunities and the obstacles. And as the opportunities and the obstacles change, our strategy should also change to take advantage of the opportunities and overcome the obstacles. Uh, just jumping right in there. So between 1973, things have changed on the ground. How have your strategies changed in light of the changing uh, conditions on the ground? Well, the Supreme Court is a powerful institution in American society. And when it shuts a door, um, you uh, may need to take, uh, forced to take uh, alternative approaches. So in 1992, uh, we urged the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade. It refused. Uh, for a, a couple of years, we were working in the tall grass in the state legislatures, trying to build, go back to building some momentum. Um, and, but, but since uh, 1992, the court has changed. Politics has changed. Uh, there's been a considerable momentum for pro-life in the state legislatures. We now have 25 to 30 states with... Uh, working pro-life majorities in the state legislatures in both houses and in the governorship. Um, and so the, the uh, opportunities have changed and the obstacles have changed. And now I, I would say that uh, before 20, I'll give you another example, before 2016, I think few legal lawyers and legal scholars, legal commentators would have, would have thought that it was possible the Supreme Court would overturn Roe versus Wade since the 2016 election. Uh, it's 
been widely speculated and expected, increasing expectations that the court will overturn Roe versus Wade. That has changed the opportunities and the obstacles and given us momentum and uh, helped us to move forward. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Rich Baker of Malk and Baker. If you're just tuning in, make sure to visit MalkBaker.com to hear the rest of this interview. You can also subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Twitter for legal updates with a biblical perspective. Today, I'm speaking with Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel with the Americans United for Life. Uh, Clark, we do have a different perspective on the U.S. Supreme Court right now. What would it mean if Roe v. Wade were be would be overturned? Would it be no more abortion in the United States or what What would happen? Overturning Roe versus Wade means sending the issue back to the states. Uh, the Supreme Court can't make abortion illegal and uh, um, would not do so. Um, there's no national law that would go back into effect. There are aren't abortion prohibitions in 50 states that would automatically go into effect. Whatever the law is in, say, Illinois or Minnesota or Ohio or California on the day that Roe's overturned would be the, the law in the short term. Um, and so the issue would go back to the states and uh, there would be an opportunity state by state to work for protecting life. But the Supreme Court and the federal courts would be out of the way. Uh, Congress might do something, but I don't think Congress would pass a national law one way or the, another. So it would effectively go back to the states. So leave it up to the people to make that decision on a state-by-state -state basis. That would be the immediate consequence of overturning Roe. Now, if the American people wanted to adopt a constitutional amendment, they could. Uh, if uh, Congress tried to pass a national law, it might try. But I question whether really Congress has the national, the, even the constitutional authority to do that. And this is has this long been a state issue, and it will be a state issue. And that's the right place to be forming public policy to protect life. Given the sentiment in our culture today, if it were to be returned to the states, what would you expect to see happening in our states? Well, I think in the short term, there would be perhaps uh, a dozen states that uh, had strong prohibitions. There might be 12 to 20 states who allowed it on demand. And there would might be 20 states in the middle, uh, 15 to 20 states in the middle that uh, had different types of limits and regulations and maybe allowed it. Um, but the immediate, the immediate result would be that um, 30 to 40 states would allow it through the first trimester, through the first 20 weeks, even up to fetal viability. And, and the pro-life forces in the states would have to work to enact limits. Uh, and those limits would be not – you had talked at one time about taking an absolutist approach. So those limits would be not necessarily to entirely stop abortion, but to limit it at, let's say, the first trimester or the first 20 weeks or – it depends on the states. I mean, uh, Washington state is going to be different from Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana. We sure see that, don't we? That's we right. do. Right. That's right. I mean, I mean, uh, you, you know, to put it somewhat crudely, you know, the red states and the blue states would go in different directions. But um, uh, that is that is an opportunity for the courts to get uh, when the courts are going to be out of the way. The Supreme Court's out of the way. The Supreme Court doesn't control the issue, and we're working state by state in the states. Uh, to uh, protect life to the greatest extent possible. And given what 
the momentum we've seen over the last 20 years, I think that's, that that a state-by-state uh, uh, battle is to the uh, advantage of the pro-life movement. So you say the uh, what we've seen over the last 20 years. I think our media oftentimes uh, plays that down. What are you referring to when you say that? Well, we've gone from states with uh, only, uh, I mean, a few states with uh, pro-life majorities to 20 to 30 states now with working majorities, I mean, pro-life majorities in the House and the Senate, or um, pro-life governors. Um, uh, look at all the laws that are coming out of the states. I mean, every year we see in the state legislative sessions, we see 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 pro-life laws passed. Uh, the abortion rate has dropped to its lowest level since Roe versus Wade. If we are down to the abortion rate it was in 72. Where, uh, you know, there, in 1992, there was a high of 1.6 million abortions. We're now down to probably below 900,000, maybe even below 800,000 a year. Now, uh, I mean, every, every death is a tragedy, but uh, we've halved the abortion rate. I wasn't even aware of that. I'm, I'm absolutely astounded by that. Uh, and your thought is that that would even uh, re- be reduced more in the situation where it was the choice was returned to the states. I believe. I believe. Yes, we would reduce abortion rate even more. You know, it's an interesting thing when we talk about choice because the um, abortion uh, agenda has always promoted choice. But it seems to me that uh, in this legal fight, the real choice would be to return it to the states and let the people decide. Certainly, politically so. Yes, legally so. Constitutionally, yes. Um, that it, it was a, a state issue before Roe versus Wade. The court took it away from the American people. The court has controlled the issue uh, ever since. And the court should not control this issue. Uh, it has been obviously a disaster for developing human beings, but it has also had a negative impact on women. Um, I mean, it, it has uh, also gotten short shrift in our in our public uh, discussions about the long-term risk of abortion on women, the long-term risk of preterm birth and and breast cancer and mental trauma after abortion. You know, we're gonna we're gonna have to end this, but. What I'm hearing in you saying that is there are a great deal of risks, and actually medical science is now beginning to develop some of those risks that abortion uh, subjects women to. Yes. Uh, Clark, thanks for speaking with us today. How can people get uh, more information about either Americans United for Life or get a hold of your books? Well, the best way is at our website, aul.org, but my book, Abuse of Discretion, uh, the inside story of Roe versus Wade is uh, available on Amazon, uh, as is uh, Politics for the Greatest Good, the case for prudence in the public square. Thanks again for being on the show. Thanks, Rich. If you have a legal need or a question and want the uh, perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact us at Malkin Baker. You can reach us at 312-726-1243 or at malkbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K. B-A-K-E-R.com. Visit our website and subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter with legal updates or call us and mention Lawyers for Jesus for a free consultation. Thanks for listening. I'm Rich Baker, attorney at Malkin Baker, and this is Lawyers for Jesus.
to serve somebody Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody 